Father God, we do come before you, and I come before you. And Lord, I just pray that you will really bless your word. Lord, may I do nothing that betrays your word. Help me to preach your word in a Christ-like demeanor. And Lord, give us all soft and, and tender hearts. Lord, that as a word comes forth from your Bible, may it be your word, the way, that, the way expressed that you want it to be expressed. And may the Holy Spirit just carry the words from my mouth to the hearts of these dear brothers and sisters. And may we walk away encouraged and challenged to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, good morning. This is my first sermon since I've been married, so it's quite an event for me. And it creates, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Before I got married, I had all these. This is the last Tuesday before I married, but then I had the first Tuesday after I was married. So it's kind of a AC and BC, AD and BC thing for me. But the week of uh, the week of my honeymoon was probably the most fantastic, wonderful experience of my entire life. Not only did I get to spend an entire week with my love of my life, but I also learned uh, a few moral lessons as my dad gave us a, a free trip to Hawaii. And when we heard, yeah, Hawaii, when we heard about, uh, <laughs> when we, people heard that we we're going to Hawaii, the reaction was, ooh, and then what island are you going to? And so we'd say Kauai, and those who have been to Kauai said, oh, that's my absolute favorite island. And then they'd talk to us about the one thing, the one site that we absolutely had to see was the Nepali coast. Now, the Nepali coast is about 50 miles of rustic, beautiful scenery on the northern coast of Kauai, untouched by roads. They, don't, they have a few campgrounds there, but that's about it. But you have these 4,000-foot high cliffs that plunge right into the Pacific. It's sprinkled with really lush foliage, and it has numerous waterfalls and really interesting and fascinating rock formations all along the coast. And so Becky and I decided, well, since the dad's paying for the honeymoon, we might as well use some of our extra money to, to pay for our trip to the Nepali coast. The problem was we found out to go to the Nepali coast was a most expensive endeavor. But we found the cheapest way to go. Uh, we went in the afternoon when the waves were a little bit rougher and the, and the sun was not as prone to be out. It meant that we went when there were less dolphins and also meant that we had a shorter cruise overall. But nonetheless, it was what our budget could afford and we went to the travel agent and we talked to Nani. Anani gave us a beacon of hope and told us that we can have a longer cruise in the morning where you see numerous dolphins at $40 off. And we said, really? What do we have to do? And she told us about a timeshare presentation. <laughs> now, all we had to do was sit in and say no to these timeshare people for two hours, and then they'd give us a half-off coupon. So Becky and I, with dollar signs in our eyes, said, sure, we'll go ahead and check that out. And so she uh, gave us some paperwork, and, and we noticed that one of the questions on the paperwork asked, do you make such and such a year? Well, um, potentially, I guess maybe if Becky were to work and get a really sweet job, we could say that. And so we, we brought that to our attention. She said, oh, don't even worry about that. And then she proceeds to make the reservations with the timeshare people and make the reservations with the boat. And then she says, "Just it's just a little white lie. Don't even worry about it. And I'm still writing, and Becky and I are looking at each other. And then she pipes up with, if they do ask, just tell them that you're a doctor. And the whole time there's this alarm going off in my head and and after about 20 minutes of just anguishing we're at the point where i just have to sign the receipt and then that would be it and i just turned to becky and i said i think we we had to we had to talk about this so i told nani nani you mind if we just have a moment to talk about this and so becky and i discuss are, are we lying we think we are let's let's go to nascar so we bring nani back and and i asked nani point blank Nani, if I were to sign off on this document, when I say I make this much a year when I don't, would I be telling a lie? Yes. Yes, you would be lying if you signed that document. And at that point, I just said, Nani, I'm sorry. We, I'm, I'm a pastor, and I just can't. I just can't. I can't sign that document. 
And she said, okay. She wasn't mad. She wasn't irritated. She just happily picked up the phone, started canceling, went into the computer, canceled our other reservations, and we went ahead and rebooked us on the less ex- or the more expensive, less quality cruise. And then afterwards, when we were all done, she just said, I am so incredibly convicted. Oh, just two days ago, God was just pointing out how far I strayed from him. And to think that I was tempting a pastor to lie. (laughs) Oh, and then she proceeded to tell us her testimony how she converted to become a Jehovah Witness. And then by reading various Bibles in John chapter 1, verse 1, in Borders Bookshop, converted out of the JWs. And how she had a troubled marriage and she was looking to get involved in a church and she was just spiraling out of control and she didn't know what to do. So Becky and I just counseled her, we prayed for her, went through the phone book, pointed out some good churches. And when we walked out, Becky and I felt about this small We just thought, what if we were to go ahead and just continue on with our little white lies? What if the people were to ask us, are you a doctor? And I were to say, yes, knowing full well that I'm a pastor. Or if I were to say I was a pastor, would they really believe that I made that kind of money as a college pastor? (laughs) Not that I have any complaints, but it's just true. (laughs) And so, I mean, how many of us have been so inhibited by deeds that belie our gospel witness. We believe that God is everywhere, but we sure don't act like it, right? When the boss leaves the office, we go ahead and you know make some long-distance phone calls. We play solitaire on the computer. We put on the internet screens. And we say that God is holy and, and he values purity, yet when people are gone, we go ahead and gossip and participate in the office gossip. We say that God is a God of peace and a God of love, but we express our rage and anger when the people at Target don't accept our return, right? There's so many ways where we know that we want to share the gospel with these people, but if we were to open our mouth or give them one hint that we're even slightly religious, that they would just unleash a torrent of insults saying that you are no better than me. You're a hypocrite. And we know they're true. We know it's true. We know that in many cases, we have blown our testimony, that we've dimmed our lives, that we've insulted ourselves, and essentially, we are no better witness to the world. We're no better testimony of Christ than our pagan, heathen, non-Christian neighbors. Is that true of you? Today, we're going to look at Matthew 13 through 16. And we're going to look at two truths of two Christians so that God might use us in the lives of others to bring many people to him. We're going to look at two truths, two imperatives that must be true of you as a Christian so that God might use you to bring others to eternal life. Let's go to Matthew 5, 13 through 16 and read along with me. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on a lampstand and it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The two imperatives that we must learn and must apply to our lives to bring others to Christ to be used by God to do so, as one, we must realize that as salt, we are to keep the world from rotting. As salt, keep the world from rotting. That's verse 13. And number two, as light, lead the way out of darkness. Verses 14 through 16. As salt, keep the world from rotting, and as light, lead the way out of darkness. Now, key and crucial to understanding this passage is to understand the, the larger picture in the book of Matthew. Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, wrote the case for the Messiah to the Jews. This is evident, as we see in the genealogy, that Jesus is a hereditary heir of the throne of David. Understanding and taking in all the input around the supernatural circumstances of his birth, we see that there is something different about this man, that he had a royal birth. To understand John the Baptist as the herald who proclaimed the way for the coming king, making Israel ready to once and again receive her king. 
To see Jesus be authenticated, unlike the kings of old, who fell into the temptations of power, wealth, and immorality, Jesus stood firm in the desert, authenticating that he truly is the omnipotent, well, not the omnipotent, the benevolent, the pure, righteous, majestic king. And Jesus goes throughout the countryside, making regal statements like, repent for the kingdom of God is here. And as Jesus is performing all these miracles, he gathers a cadre of disciples who follow him, who faithfully support him, who will be used by him eventually to turn the world upside down. And here the countryside is abuzz, talking about who is this man, Jesus. And they follow him into the mountains and upon a plain. And what he does is he unfolds to them the Sermon on the Mount. He gives the inaugural address of his kingdom. He tells them who will enter his kingdom. It is not the powerful. It is not the wealthy. But it is the humble and it is the meek. It is the gentle. It is the beatitudes. The people described as those who give of themselves, who are not in the kingdom of God for themselves, who are not self-righteous but depend on God's righteousness. That is the people that he's addressing. And after he addresses the beatitudes, He tells them, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And so this brings us to our first point. As salt, you must keep the world from rotting. You are the salt of the earth. Now implicit in this statement is the notion that the world needs some sort of salt that the world is in moral decay. It is rotten to the core. Now, it is not too difficult to see this, but I think a simple prayer by Joe Wright, who is a pastor of the 2,500-member Central Christian Church of Wichita, prayed in 1996 before the Kansas House of, of Representatives, really captures the world that we live in. Heavenly Father, We come before you and ask you for your forgiveness. We seek your direction and your guidance. We know that your word word says, woe to those who call evil good. But that's what we've done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium. We have inverted our values. We have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word in the name of moral pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We have neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. In the name of choice, we have killed our unborn. In the name of right to life, we have killed abortionists. We have neglected to discipline our children and and called it building self-esteem. We have abused our power and called it political savvy. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it taxes. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. And this is the context that we find ourselves. The same master of the world, Satan, was the same master of the world in Jesus' time. And he is the Pied Piper leading all the rats of the world into moral decay into destruction and like lemmings blindly leaving for that cliff the world is jumping into the abyss each and every moment but God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and he also so loved the world that he decided to sprinkle it with salt and ladies and gentlemen brothers and sisters to keep the world from rotting we need to ask ourselves three questions Ask yourself three questions. One, you must discern whether or not you are salt. Number two, you must perform your function as salt. Are you performing your function as salt? And three, stay salty. Are you staying salty? The first thing we must discern is discern whether or not you are salt. You are salt of the earth. Now, salt is not a term that is applied to everyone. It's a term applied to those who faithfully keep the Beatitudes. It's a term applied to those who are truly converted and those who are walking in the spirit. Just like somebody could say they're a Christian, yet say that they don't believe in the resurrection, they don't believe in the deity of Christ. You can't say that you're salt unless you have certain characteristics. And to find that, let's all go to Matthew 5, 3 through 12, and we'll look at the Beatitudes. And this is the opening statement of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus lays forth the criteria 
of those people who are to follow him, those people who are to enter his kingdom. Read along with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thus Jesus is saying, if you've rejected your righteousness in place of Christ, if you have mourned over your sin and have been comforted with a cloak of forgiveness, if you meekly submit to God's authorities and became a co-heir with Christ, if you have hungered for God's righteousness and have been given Christ, if you have shown mercy and forgiveness because you have been forgiven, if you seek holiness and God sanctifies you, if you desire peace with people because you have peace with God, if you have been persecuted for a godly life and service, in other words, if you are a Christian, if you are walking in the Spirit or you're faithfully applying the Beatitudes to your life, you are salt. Jesus does not say that you should consider being salt or be salt or you ought to be salt. He's saying you are salt. It is your identity. When you are faithfully walking with God, you are the salt that keeps the world from rotting. And so what you must do is not only know your identity, not only get your life right with the Beatitudes so you can unequivocally say, I am salt, but to perform your function as salt. Now, many of you might have heard the old adage that when you kick someone when they're down, you're pouring salt in their wounds, right? Now, in a very real way, that describes the function of salt. When you pour salt in a wound, it sucks up all of the unnecessary water, all of the excess water, which is the breeding ground for all the bacteria that causes the infections. Not only that, but it takes away all the water from the bacteria, thereby killing it and disinfecting your wound. And in the same way, this salt was a preserving agent as it kept meat from rotting. Now, James, John, and Peter knew exactly what he was talking about. They'd be fishing throughout the night, bringing a big haul of fish. And before they brought it into town, they would pack it with salt to keep the fish from rotting because it is very difficult to sell putrid, stinky fish, isn't it? Right? In fact, so valuable was salt that it was a currency in which Romans paid their Roman soldiers. So when we hear the term salary, that's where we get it from. Salt was a precious commodity, vital to the economy and vital to life as it kept food from rotting and flavored life as well. And so what he's talking about is you are the salt of the world. And in a day and age where we ridicule sodium as evil, right? And we buy sodium free everything. We know that salt is a good thing from this passage. And what he's saying is that as Christians, when you are holy and walking with the Lord, you are used by God to kill this bacteria of depravity and sin that has just tortured the world. You are salt when at Target, five consecutive people berate the customer service person because they can't get the return. And when they tell you that, I'm sorry, but I can't return that, you don't have the receipt, you just respond graciously, okay, I'll just take it home then. Thanks for your time. That convicts everybody else in line to treat that person nice too, doesn't it? When you are serving in jury duty and everybody is just complaining and whining and throwing out every imaginable excuse to go home and you say, you know what? I really value the services that you do and I know that I would want to be tried by a jury if I was ever convicted wrongly. So I'll go ahead and serve. You are salt, right? All those things are salt. You are salt when the boss leaves the office and you still continue to work faithfully, even though other people are participating in office gossip, even though other people are making long distance phone calls, even though other people are playing solitaire and surfing on the internet, even though other people are borrowing items to take home for personal office use, right? You are salt when you stay faithful to the task at hand. Now, if you are salt, one thing that we must do is we must have it properly applied. 
for instance, if I were to slaughter a cow, I would not give the old heifer, you know, six salt tablets, then go ahead and kill it and slaughter it, right? That's not going to preserve the meat. You go ahead and kill it, you slaughter it, and you sprinkle it with salt to preserve it. And many times, many well-meaning Christians are sincerely misguided to how to change the world. For like us, they look at the world and they see how so many people are ensnared to sin. They see people who are engulfed in the homosexual community, who are, who are committing abortions and having abortions committed on them. Well, I guess you couldn't do that, but allowing them to go through abortions. They are people who are militant, radical feminists. And what people resort to is they resort to political action. They say, if we set government policies, perhaps that will sanctify them. But the reality is it only makes things more difficult. Imagine if you had an office full of homosexuals that you're trying to witness to and some leading well-known evangelical preacher found out that the Burbank school district was going to mandate some sort of gay curriculum. And so they protested up and down and had these loud, angry speeches about all the evils that the homosexual community is doing to this country. Would that make it easier or more difficult for you to share the gospel with your coworkers who are also gay? It'd make it much, much more difficult. Often when we draw the wrong battle lines and when we use worldly means to take care of worldly problems, we make more enemies than friends. Because what is going to change those people is not government policy. Government policy will just make them Pharisees. What will change their hearts is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The only hope for this world is to have a sweeping revival where the church pours their resources and time and energy into faithfully proclaiming the word one soul at a time. By faithfully and gently interacting with those people who are enslaved to the sin of homosexuality, talking to them as people, not as enemies, and sharing the light of God's word and sharing the truth with them. That is what's needed. To properly apply salt means that we talk to the people. We share them as people. We confront the sin, no matter how sinful it is. The homosexual and the heterosexual still have sin problems, right? The militant feminist and the stay-at-home housewife still has sin problems. The person who who believes in the right to life and the people who are pro-abortion still have the same sin problem. We address the sin we address the heart and we point people to the cross and point people to Christ. That's what it means to properly apply it. The next admonition is to stay salty. In verse 13, we read halfway through, but if salt becomes tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled by foot. Now, for those of you who are familiar with chemistry, you may have noticed a slight contradiction here. Sodium chloride, which is the compound we get salt from, is a stable element. It never ever loses its salinity or its salt-like properties. But the salt in the Dead Sea region was very much contaminated by other minerals that encased it. So it's possible to dissolve the compound and have all the salt seep out. And what you're left with is just this dirt, oozy mush that was good for nothing except for throwing down on footpaths to keep the vegetation from growing. That was it. And what Jesus is saying is, don't do those activities which compromise your saltiness. Now, before I was a pastor, I worked at Circuit City to pay my way through seminary. And I worked in a few departments. First of all, I started out at another store in the white goods department. For white goods, those are For those of you who don't know what white goods are, those are the goods that are white, like refrigerators, washers and dryers, microwaves, ovens, etc. And so I was transferred over to Circuit City to work in the big screen TV and video camera department. And I made a good living selling all those big screen TVs to, to several individuals. But one day it was very slow in the video department, but the white goods department was absolutely packed out. And so my boss approached me and said, Dave, would you mind just going over to the refrigerators and helping some people out? I said, yeah, sure. Now, I had a good day. I wasn't really in it to make you know, any money. I mean, I didn't really need it. I was just going to try to hold the fort, answer some questions until one of the sales associates got free. And so I approached a young married couple, and they had some questions about a refrigerator. And so I tried to a- answer their questions, but I knew I was ignorant about a lot, a lot of the latest refrigerator technology. And so I'd go and I'd ask a salesperson, then come back. And I just told them that this is not normally my department. So I'd just appreciate if you just 
you know, part of my ignorance because I wanted to give him the right information. But then the guy just became impatient. He lambasted me, criticized me, talked about how I didn't know what I was doing. And he was going to go to Best Buy to talk to someone who actually knows what they're talking about. And they just walked out. In my years at Circuit City, and it was in an angry voice in that, mind you. In my years at Circuit City, I have never been lambasted like that. It was all I can do to keep myself from being enraged because customers just didn't treat me that way. But imagine my surprise. That was Saturday night when the, the very next day I walked into church and in my Sunday school class, I saw the exact same couple. Now, as if I was a non-Christian, what do you think I would have done? Yeah, I would have pulled a U-turn and just walked right out of there. They lost their saltiness. They lost their saltiness. And how many of us have lost our saltiness? How many of you have, might have snapped at the Vons cashier or snapped at the postal clerk for getting the wrong address, right? I mean, how many times do you, have you gone to, let's say, Chevy's after church and you and a big group of people just sat around and just lingered over dinner for about two hours or lingered over lunch for two hours so that no other people can get in and traffic through the table to preclude the waiter from getting any more tips from anybody else. You were extremely demanding by demanding all these refills, by sending many of the items back to get it done right at the right temperature that you want. You pray before your meal and you talk about the sermon. But at the end of it, with a $100 check, you leave five bucks. What kind of testimony does that leave for the waiter? Would he want to come to your church? If he were to come here and see that group of people sitting all in the one row, what do you think he would do? And that's not too far from the truth. Many people in the restaurant industry don't want to work on Saturday afternoons because the Christians are the worst tippers. What kind of testimony is that? The world is watching us. You are the only Bible that some people will ever read. And what message are they getting? Do they see you full of an inexpressible joy, having a transformed life, a real peace within, and a, and a genuine love of people? Or do they see you as just a moralized version of themselves? That at your core, you're no different than them. You gossip, you slander, you laugh at coarse jesting, you do all those things. You may not see uh, any R-rated movies, but you let people know that you don't, right? All those things cause us to lose our saltiness, and we are no more useful to the kingdom of God than common dirt is to seasoning food. That's what happens when we lose our saltiness. The second aspect that we need to focus on is not only to we must be salt to stay, keep the world from rotting away, but as light, lead the world out of darkness, Let's go back to our Bibles, 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now there's two images that are being presented here. One, you are the light of the world. And two, you are the city on the hill. Now when you hear, you are the light of the world, what text do you think about? When Jesus says in John eight, twelve, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life as a logical answer. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But then he turns around and says, you are the light of the world. Now, when you look at the context of the John passage where he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He does it in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was a, a celebration to commemorate the preservation of the Jews in the desert. How after the Lord delivered them from the Pharaoh's bondage in Egypt, and before he took them into the promised land, he provided for them with water from the rock, bread from heaven, and he led them with a pillar of fire. And on the last and great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, they'd light these huge lamps that would illumine the temple court and people would celebrate until dawn. And that commemorated, Jesus points to that and says, I am the light of the world. That commemorates me. I am the pillar of fire who led your fathers out of bondage in Egypt to the freedom of the promised land. And I will lead you out of the bondage and captivity of sin to the freedom of eternal life. And he's saying, follow me and I'll point the way to heaven. Now, in the same way, 
you are the light of the world. Jesus is not here anymore. He has completely delegated that task to us. A certain college student has a t-shirt that I thought was extremely riveting. It says, be the moon, reflect the sun. And sun is spelled S-O-N. That the moon doesn't generate any of its own light, but it reflects the light of the sun to illumine this dark planet. That is what we are to be. We are to be the moon. We are to express God's love, mercy, kindness, and justice and righteousness in our lives for the world to see. The second image is that you are a city on a hill. Now, when we think of a city on a hill, it's very difficult to conceptualize because we live in a very lighted world. For instance, when Becky and I were in Catalina and looked across the channel at LA, we saw the orange hue of the city lights. But back in the ancient Near East, when there were no street lamps, when there were no tall buildings with lights, it was a very dark place. And a city on a hill stood out because they would wash the walls, the limestone walls, so that they were just bleach white. And they would just radiate and reflect the light of the sun so that everybody could see it from miles away. And then when the sun set and it grew dark, the light, the lighted lamps in the windows would undoubtedly once again draw attention to it. A city on a hill is very easy to locate. And in the same way, Christians who are walking in the spirit, who are faithfully applying the Beatitudes, would be as inconspicuous as a pink elephant on the stage, right? There's no way you can hide it. In a world of darkness and moral decay, People who have true love for the Lord, love for others, who walk in integrity, stand out, shining like the stars of the universe, right? In this dark and decrepit generation. That is what you are to do. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill which is impossible to hide. Yet many of us attempt to do so. Many of us attempt to hide our light when Christ explicitly tells us to let our light shine. In verse 15, he goes on to read, Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure. With the admonition to let your light shine, Jesus discusses the probability of hiding our lights. Now, in the ancient Near East, they didn't have matches or lighters, so lighting an oil lamp was a very difficult endeavor. And so what they do, instead of having to blow it out and relight it every time they left the house, they'd put a peck measure or a bowl on top of it to make sure that they didn't have to light it again and it didn't burn down the house when they were gone. And the imagery that he's bringing about is we have this light, yet we cover ourselves so that the world cannot see it. And there's really three main reasons why we do that. One is the fear of men. The other one is monastic tendencies. And then the final one is just moral compromise. Now, in my college days, this is talking about the fear of men. In my college days, the one group of people that I had the hardest time witnessing to, in fact, I don't even think I ever successfully did it, was my college professors. I'd share with the students, I'd share with the RAs, I might share with other employees. But when it came to the professors, they had power, which I was afraid of. I was afraid that if I were to share the gospel with them and be bold about the cross and bold about Christ, that they may not give me the desired grade. That they may think I'm stupid. They might belittle me because they're obviously much more intelligent than I, a simple person trying to earn a bachelor's degree. And to my shame, I was motivated to be silent because of the fear of men. And how many of us are afraid to speak up for the cross. We're afraid to speak out for the cross. We're afraid to impart biblical truth to others because we're afraid that the in crowd might place us in the out crowd, right? We're afraid that people might be awkward or belittle us, that we value their friendship so much that we want to do nothing to part with it. In the end, we love ourselves more than them. I mean, how many of us have a greater fear of man than fear of the Lord and it just intimidates us into silence? One German theologian writes the following. Flight into the invisible is a denial of a call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Undercover Christians are not walking Christians. We are to be in the world. We are to be the light of the world. Now the second way we hide our light is through monastic tendencies. Those of you who aren't familiar with monasticism, where you might get the common term monks, One author describes it as the following. 
In early Christianity, the model of devotion was a recluse dedicated to resisting the corruption of society. Trying to avoid the contagion of sins, material and sensual, these men would wander the desert alone, fasting, praying, and having visions. Many went to extremes, eating nothing but grass, living in trees, or refusing to wash. Often their reputations attracted large crowds. The most famous, some years later, was Simeon Stylitis, the austere anchorite who was so distracted by people trespassing his cave that he built and lived atop a pillar for 36 years, fed by his disciples who lifted food, baskets of food 60 feet to their lofty leader. Some of us are so scared of getting spiritual cooties that we stay as far away from the world as possible. I remember in college, many of my friends had this dream of buying a a six-bedroom house and having eight or ten of the Christian brothers living there and having our own little Christian commune where we can really encourage one another to, to love and good deeds. But that was at the expense of taking us out of the dorms. Fortunately, some wisdom prevailed and we decided to stay in the dorms for the explicit purpose of starting campus Bible studies and the Lord bless the efforts. And many of us have monastic tendencies. We want to pull ourselves out of any public arena or sphere of influence. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yet we want to separate ourselves from the corrupting influences of society. But when it gets to the point where we have no Christian friends, When it gets to the point that we have no point of contact where we can share our faith with non-Christians, there's a problem. And this is a problem for me as well. I'm a pastor. My whole social life, my whole vocational life is about Christians. And it is a challenge. And if it is difficult, if your kids are put into a private school, a private Christian school, if all your social life revolves around Christian activities and ministry, then you especially, just like myself, need to make an extra concerted effort to interact with the world, to let your light shine. If you were to design and build a house, it'd be very foolish to put all the light sockets in one bedroom, right? Yeah, you'd fire that electrician who did that. You'd want to have it at every single house so that the whole house is lit and illumined so everybody could see. See, we're all lights right here in this room, but when we leave, we need to make sure that we don't break up into our little light bulb clusters, but that we spread out through all the world. We divide and conquer and take the gospel to the lost. The last way that people hide their lights is through compromise. Now, let's say you were to take a light bulb, dip it in oil, then dip it in feathers, or dip it in tar and dip it in feathers. What kind of light would come from that light bulb? right? It'd be very, very dim, if not opaque and black. Yeah, that's what compromise does. We hide our lives when we compromise. One only has to look at Lot, a citizen of the sinful city of Sodom, to find an example of this. Here is a man who is called a righteous man, who originally lived outside the sensual city of sin, Sodom, but then we find him living inside the city, he married a woman who would prove to be a pillar of salt, kind of ironic in light of the the text today, because she loved the world and she loved Sodom more than she loved the Lord. You would find that his daughters committed brash acts of immorality and lured him into it, that he had decrepit children, a wicked wife, lived in a wicked city, and yet in Genesis 19.16 we read when, when God tells him to get out of Sodom, he lingers. Now, is it any wonder why there weren't more than 10 righteous men in Sodom? Here we have Lot, a child of righteousness, who had absolutely no gospel impact because he compromised. Now, many of you might be feeling somewhat good about yourself, thinking, well, Dave, I do have a lot of non-Christian friends. In fact, all my friends are non-Christians. I'm a light, right? But let me ask you this question. Are you preaching the gospel to those friends? Are you having a bigger impact on them or are they having an impact on you? Bad company corrupts good morals. And many times we try to build all these friendships and we love these friendships so much that we're scared of sharing the gospel for fear that we might lose them. Jesus interacted with a lot of non-Christians, but he didn't go to parties with them. He didn't drink with them. He didn't engage in their crass behavior. He stood out preaching the truth 
preaching the gospel and calling them to repent and come out of the world of darkness. Bad company corrupts good morals, but we still need to make our light as visible as possible. That brings us to our second point. Make your light as visible as possible. This is from 15 and 16. He goes on to say, nor do they light a lamp and put it on their peck measure, but this is our text here. But on the lampstand and gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your father who is in heaven. Now, even though I hate the smog and traffic of California, there is one aspect I do enjoy, and that is the dwindling mosquito population. Now, growing up in the Northwest and the Midwest, a mosquito was practically our state bird. Where at night, you would see the, this cloud of mosquitoes rising from the trees and praying like vampires, following and seeking after sweet-blooded, pale-skinned, blue-eyed boys such as myself. <laughs> and every night, I would get stung and stung. I guess, you know, all these, I don't know, mosquito bites. But it was, it was not fun, people. Let me just tell you that. But there was a turning point in my battle against a mosquito. It occurred when my dad bought our first bug zapper. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know, the bug zapper is a, you know, you have a black light. And what the black light does is it mesmerizes the mosquitoes where they follow the siren call, and the siren sight, and the siren beauty of the bug light. And they're captured by it and they just kind of buzz towards it, checking it out. And then as they approach the light they get fried by the electrical shock therapy of the metal cage and it fries the inside of their exoskeleton. <laughs> Thus you get the zap and the popping sound. And all throughout the night, we just watch all of these bugs meet their death, flying and frying and dying. <laughs> and we would not put the bug zapper inside the house we would not put the bug zapper underneath the picnic table. We would put the bug zapper as high as possible and turn off all the lights so everything will be driven towards that incandescent light. Now, in the same way, or in a similar way, because we don't want people to, to die when they come to us. <laughs> in a similar way, we are to draw all men to Christ by drawing it to ourselves. Now, this is not like the Pharisees we read about in, in Matthew chapter 6 who say, I am holy, hear my prayer, look at me, people, and be like me. I am a righteous man. We're not to do that. Those people are standing in public trying to get praise and glory for themselves. But our sole purpose is to recognize that we are nothing but empty vessels that are good for nothing more than to be filled with God's presence and glory. That we are to be mirrors that reflect when people see yes, they immediately see Christ, that we reflect God's glory to them. And as a result, they come to him. We are commanded to let our light shine in such a way, in humility, in righteousness, in kindness and meekness, as a walking Christian applying the Beatitudes so that people might be drawn to our Heavenly Father and drawn to the Lord, that they might come to us and ask us, what is the hope within us? And we can apply 1 Peter 3.15, which says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, with gentleness and reverence. And just like Jesus had many miracles, turning water into wine, healing the blind, healing the sick, causing the lame to walk, raising people from the dead, he did all of those miracles so that there would be compelling signs to substantiate his message. And in the same way, the miracle of salvation, the miracle of sanctification, the Holy Spirit working out our life is just as powerful as a miracle as raising someone from the dead. And when people see that, we are to back it up with proclaiming the gospel, with proclaiming the word, because people don't get saved by your good behavior. They get saved by hearing the word of God and the gospel message. But in the meantime, we must not distort people's perception of Christ. They must look at us and just marvel at what kind of God that we serve. That is why we are to let our light shine. That is why we are to be the salt of the earth. We are to keep the world from rotting and stopping the infections of Satan from consuming, and 
consuming and killing the entire planet. We are to lead the way out of darkness where those who are lost will easily recognize someone who has been found and find the way to salvation through them. Now, for those of you who might be extremely convicted, I want to offer you some hope, some application. How is it that you can be the light of the world? How can you be the salt of the earth? Well, there's a few things. The first thing that you must do is go over the Beatitudes and ask yourself, are all these statements true of me? And if they aren't, what can I do to change them? Ask your wife, ask your husband, ask some friends, ask your parents, which ones are not true of me? And ask God for the grace to change and he'll help you. Two, ask yourself, if 60 Minutes followed you around, would they have an expose on your life? If 60 Minutes followed you around, they looked at all of your tax returns, they looked at all the objects in your house and what's at the office, would they have an expose of your life? Are you cheating in school? Are you cheating at work, taking shortcuts? Are you not working as hard or as faithfully as you could be? Have you been mean to people in your family? Have you been belligerent and stubborn to non-Christians? If that's the case, apologize. Many times I've had to humble myself to, to, to non-Christians who I know I've sinned against, even though they've sinned against me. Humble yourself. Ask for repentance, because that's very different from the world, though, right? People in the world don't apologize for things sincerely. Three, do activities which force you to build relationships and interact with non-Christians. Join the PTA. Invite some of your kids' parents over for dinner. Coach a soccer team. Join the YMCA. Coach, um, take a class. For those of you who are students, invite those who are struggling with their assignments over for dinner for a study session. Help them, come alongside of them, and help them to, to learn. There's many ways to have a, an opportunity. And for those of us who are so involved in church ministry, make sure that you carve out that extra time so that you can have some sort of testimony with your non-Christian neighbors and friends and people at work. Number four, practice being kind and gracious to everyone. While you're at the checkout stand, just pray, what can I do to lead this person to Christ? How can I be kind and gracious to them? If there's an opportunity to mention that you're a Christian, could you do it in your behavior and not worry anything about it? If all the, if the cashier and people at the post office who you frequent were to come to church, would they be delighted to see you there? Or would you see them and just kind of hide and turn away from them knowing that they know a darker side of you that is not true of you here at church? Number five, be prepared to share the gospel at all times. Take my class. It starts at seven. If you guys don't know how to verbalize the gospel, it's just a four-week class. We go through it. And people, you can ask several people who have taken it and have been very blessed by it. Learn how to share the gospel. Learn how to articulate it. So they're not just writing on your good behavior, but on the message that's coming from your mouth. Ask the Lord, number six, to send non-Christians to you. It's just amazing how many times I've prayed and asked God to send non-Christians to me that he's been faithful to do that. And when they do come, seize the moment, seize the opportunity, share the gospel. And number seven, ask the Lord to burden your heart for the lost. For those of you who may have grown up in a Christian family, haven't interacted with non-Christians, this will be a little bit more difficult endeavor for you as you don't know people who you really care and love about who are going to hell. But just as you're driving and you see somebody walking by the street and maybe you might be tempted to criticize them by how funny they look or what kind of strange outfit they're wearing, why don't you pray for them instead? When people are being ornery and obnoxious at the movie theater, pray for those people and pray for their salvation. Train yourself to think about an eternal perspective. Look at people and weep for them and love them through prayer and asking for their salvation. And ultimately, if you do all these things, I think the Lord will give you another chance for those of you who have, who have blown your, your testimony. In fact, the Lord will give you another chance. He's a very gracious God. He's very forgiving. And, and in spite of our little debacle with Nani, the travel agent, the Lord gave us another chance in Hawaii. A couple of days later, we were at an art gallery and we were talking to the salesman and I noticed some fantastic music going over the loudspeaker. So I inquired about it and I said, who is this? So he told me the name and said, hey, I can give you a copy if you want. It's like, oh, I, yeah, don't worry about it. I don't need it. Goes, oh, no, no, no problem. 
I'll just go ahead and burn a burn the CD. I have it on the computer, and yeah, you can take it. And I said, no. I'm thinking to myself, Dave, that's against the law. So I decided not to do it. I said, no, that's okay. And then he began to tell Becky and I a, a pretty coarse joke, and we just stood there, making no no reaction, no face. And you'd think by this time the guy might have been a little bit turned off, but three minutes later, he just said, are you a pastor? <laughs> just out of the blue, he asked, are you a pastor? And I said, yes, and he couldn't believe it. And so I told him, I gave him my business card to prove to him that I was a pastor. And then we had a nice 15 to 20 minute conversation where no other customers were bothering him and we were able to share the gospel with him. And as it turned out, two other pastors have been approaching him consistently, trying to get him to go to church. And he was going for about six months, but got out of the habit. And we encouraged him to go back and check it out. When you're the light of the world, you become a spiritual magnet. People are drawn to you. They want to know what's different about you. And hopefully you'll talk to them before they talk to you. But that is why it is important that we practice what we preach. St. Francis of Assisi once said, Speak the Bible at all times. Use words if necessary. And though that is a motto of many non-confrontational Christians who love their own comfort and don't want to share their faith, so they just say, just look at my behavior, there is a salient point to it. We are Christians. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. And we need to be an accurate mirrored reflection of God to this lost and depraved generation. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you for your word and how clearly and powerfully it speaks. Lord, help us to be salt and to be light. And Lord, forgive us for all those times where we have hit our light, all those times when we have lost our saltiness. Lord, may today just be a fresh start for us. Lord, we thank you that you are forgiving. Lord, that you have forgiven us and covered us with your blood. And Lord, may we just get right back up and just faithfully proclaim your word to live it out. And Lord, may you use us to bring forth a harvest of souls here. May our church not grow by, by the attrition of other churches or by transfer, but may our church grow by us being lights and salt that we might see many, many Gentiles come to know you and give glory to you. Lord, may we adhere our command to let our light shine and give us the grace to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.